Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. The creepiest version of this old house ever. It's episode 381 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and that's right, Chapel Wait premieres on Epics this Sunday, August 22nd. And I'm going to be talking to executive producers Peter and Jason Flaherty, also Donald DeLine, about this creepy new series from Adrian Brody, of course, based on the short story by Stephen King. So much to talk about, about what's going on with this Boone family and what's going on with this Chapelweight house. It's freaky. We're going to get down to exactly what's going on there. Also, going to be talking again about Heels from Stars with, again, some of the stars of that series. Talking about Chris Bauer, also Mary McCormick, James Harrison, and Alan Maldonado. All going to be here to talk about their characters from this series that you can also watch every Sunday night on Stars. Also, a great new comic from Image Comics coming called Second Chances. I'll talk to writer and creator Ricky Mamone about that. Nerd news back this week as well. But yeah, we're going to start by heading to Chapelweight. Going to be talking to the executive producers of the new Epic series. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Dave Dastmalchen, creator of Count Crowley Reluctant Midnight Monster Hunter. You are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You've heard me talk about it on the show. Chapel Wait coming to Epics this Sunday, August the 22nd, based on Stephen King's short story, Jerusalem's Lot. So much going on here. So many creepy things to talk about. So I thought, why not get a chance to chat with the executive producers, Jason Flaherty and Peter Flaherty, also Donald DeLine, about what we can expect coming up this season. So here's my conversation with those guys. What's up, James? Hey, James. Gentlemen, how's it going? Uh, Great. Anytime you guys, anytime you hear the name Stephen King, that kind of automatically sets up a certain level of expectation. So how did you guys want to honor the original source material, but also add on some things to kind of expand on the story as well? Well, I think that I think we had to expand on the story to fill 10 hours of compelling television, but we certainly tried to hold fast to the themes of, of the original material. Certainly the, the environment, the atmosphere, the mood, it, the short story is kind of a well, a nod a little bit. I always thought to Lovecraft, and 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 we certainly go to there those places. The core of that story is is really all in the show. It's quite intact. I think, as Peter said, to you know really flesh out the story and make a, a, a ten episode series out of it. You know, the guys cleverly you know brought in the family to increase the stakes for Charles Boone and you know it really you know kind of dug into the history and mythology of the things that King set up in the short story and got into the into the fascinating details of it it's kind of fun when you when you whenever you do a father figure in in a Stephen King project a father figure who may or may not be losing his mind visions of ha- of axes coming through uh, doors and, you know, labyrinths of, you know, come to mind. And so he has that built in, holy shit, is this the shining factor, which we were able to capitalize, I think, on. 
No doubt about that. I would agree with that for sure. There's a lot of tragedy surrounding this Boone family, both in the past and in the present day, actually. So what would you say defines the story more, the reality of that within the family dynamic or the perception of everybody around this family? Good question. I think if I, I just will say first, I think that the perception takes over once they once they get to Preacher's Corners, Maine, and that that really starts to drive what's happening. Perception is kind of everything at that point, isn't it, guys? Yeah, I think that is a good point. You know, Charles Boone comes to comes back to New England, comes back to, to Maine to take over this house. And he's thinking, as he did always with a kid, that his relatives were these upstanding citizens. They had wealth, they had a name, people admired them, they were well-respected. And then to land in Preacher's Corners and realize it's actually exactly the opposite opposite and you are treated like lepers pretty much yeah so that perception was was really big and with the children of being mixed race and other at that time they were not welcome there it was a you know obviously very white very protestant very closed-minded small-minded kind of community no doubt about that now the one thing that really struck me about captain charles boone and adrian Brody in general is that you know, you could tell that he he's very aware of everything that's going on around him, and he tries his best to be a good man. So what is it about him that makes you believe that he can actually erase this perception of his family? I would say perhaps his, his character, his integrity. I mean, yeah. he's a man of his word. He's, a, he's never anything less than honest with anyone. He's heroic, and, and he's Really, all he wants is to, is to, you know, he sacrificed his career to try to uh, provide a good life for his kids. And that's what he wants. He's a strong moral center, Charles Boone. He's very unshakable that way. That's a perfect way to put it. I really love the character of Rebecca Morgan. I think Emily does a great job with that. Story-wise, what kind of made her or makes her the perfect addition to this Boone family household? Rebecca uh, Morgan, her character, like the Boones, is an outsider. She went off to Mount Holyoke College uh, at a time when females in general weren't going to college. So she's well-educated, she's more worldly, she's driven, she's- um, Intellectually curious. Intellectually curious, she has a job. So, so I think what we always imagined was you, you ultimately had this little group, this little within, within uh, chapel weight of outsiders. And that's why she ultimately comes to love the family, even though she comes uh, there with a little different intentions to begin with. But they're all, they all, like I said, they, you know, the people of, of Preacher's Corners uh, all kind of look at them, them all as different. And that's, we wanted her to be different too. Well, she certainly was that, no doubt about it. Now, we do deal with a mysterious illness as well, on top of everything else in this series. And since we're talking about I, 1850s, New England here. Can you talk about how societal norms at the time, not just the perception of the virus, but also how it plays a part and how the story evolves throughout the season? 1850s Maine, it was hard times. The average life expectancy in the U.S. for both men and women was only 40. We would shoot in houses where, uh, you know, they would have plaques on the wall of listing the five or six kids who had died in childbirth. Consumption was rampant, uh, tuberculosis. So, this mystery illness that is going on in the town is blamed on the boons. They call it the boon pox. It sort of colors, as you were talking, the perception of the family. We find out over the course of the series, the illness is quite real, but it's caused by something far worse and far hor more horrific than anyone could have expected and is indeed connected to the boons. 
you know, we were, you know, it's like, yes, it's like the boons were like patient zero, like they brought the illness to preacher's corners. And we had this fascinating experience because we shot this in the middle of the first shutdown of the pandemic. And we were, you know, flew to Nova Scotia and had to go into a two week quarantine before we could come outside and had these very strict protocols on set with masks and testing and all the rest of it. And so we were all kind of living this strange fear at the same time as we were making the show. It was, it was quite something. How yeah. fitting that that would yeah. happen at that exact yeah. same time in, in a weird way. Yeah. So, uh, other than your pilot and other than the, the season finale, of course, both of which were really, really good. Is there a particular episode that really stands out to you guys that makes you go, oh, I can't wait for fans to see this or fans are going to freak out when they see this? I think my favorite episode, I, I really like episode eight. I really like everybody. Episode eight is excellent. Yeah. Balls out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it gets real. Because really, you get some good action, you get some good character stuff, and uh, and a big yeah. ending to that episode. That's I think five is strong. Five is um, strong. You meet uh, an un an unexpected antagonist who is really quite formidable. So five is kind of fun. And three, yeah, yeah, three's good. I I feel like three kind of kicks kicks everything into gear. Yeah. One and two. You know, we, we, you're meeting people, we're, we're, we're setting up things. And yes, some may say it's a little slow or whatever, but it's intentional. And then three, I think, yeah, we're off and running, I think. And it all starts on August the 22nd on Epics. Can't wait for everybody to see Chapel Wait. Peter, Jason, Donald, thank you so much, guys, for joining me. I thank appreciate you, James. it. Thank you, Thanks, James. James. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. And let me just tell you this. The first few minutes of that first episode of Chapel Wait will have your eyes popping out of your head. At least I think they'll be popping out of your head. What happens in the beginning of this first episode? And it's a flashback that much I could tell you. It really sets the tone for what you're going to be seeing throughout the rest of the season. So this is as an, as important a first few minutes of a show as you'll have in recent memory that I can think of. Make sure you're watching Chapel Wait every Sunday night on Epics from here on out. Thanks to once again to Jason Filardi, Peter Feraldi, and Donald DeLine for joining me this week to talk about Chapel Wait. Up next, we'll go back to stars and talk about heels with more members of the cast this week. Next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Hale Appleman from The Magicians, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. We decided to go best two out of three falls here and talk again about heels from stars. I know you watched the premiere this past Sunday, you loved it. You can't wait for the second episode. So I thought this was a good chance to bring in some other members of the cast this week to talk about the show. As a matter of fact, Mary McCormick, who plays Willie, joined me at a press event for the series, paired up with Chris Bauer, of course, Mary McCormick playing Willie, Chris Bauer playing Wild Bill. And I got a chance to talk to the both of them about their characters and what's going on this season. Here's what they had to say. Chris, I wanted to ask you, because Wild Bill's kind of got that big shot Ric Flair-like mentality. When he's in the room, he wants to own the room. So do you feel like that ego is a real asset to him, or could that actually be seen as a weakness for him as well? I think that Wild Bill's ego, you know, this show takes place when the ego is kind of not becoming the amigo that it used to be. And he's, he's gotten a long, long way riding that wave, but time goes on. And he's kind of hitting that point where the same bag of tricks may not have the same effect. 
that it has up to that point, which is what's interesting about, you know, when the show takes place. There's a lot of people in this window of the story who are transitioning from high to low and low to high. But I think that while Bill has been running on that ego train for so long, that it's going to take a lot to chase that out of him. It's not that he doesn't understand humility. I think he does. I mean, He's seen, he's experienced enough injury and seen enough in others. He knows so many people who almost made it and he, you know, but didn't. So he understands humility. I think he's scared of it. And I think that every time he invests further in what used to work, he, it blows up in his face more. Another one of the members of the press that joined me for this roundtable asked a really good question about how working on heels changed both of their perceptions of professional wrestling. Mary wasn't a fan before Chris was. So hear what they had to say about that. I thought it was really interesting. For me, there was so much because I didn't know very much. But one of the biggest revelations for me was that they're incredible athletes, wrestlers. You know, I just never, you know, you sort of hear it's scripted, it's fake. So, But what's, you know, Chris says it best, what's not fake is how hard you hit that mat. You know, it's really incredible just, and to watch these guys get in the shape they had to get in to do it was Big, and I know it's even bigger when it's real. Like I can't, I can't imagine. So I, I have a newfound respect for wrestlers, big time. Yeah, and I, I gotta be honest. I loved wrestling, and I admired wrestlers from the beginning. And it's bigger now. My love is, it's turned into reverence a little bit. The offering of catharsis for an audience, based on the personal sacrifice, bodily sacrifice, of the wrestler, is something that I don't think I'll ever. I don't know how you respect that more than showing up and giving the wrestler back as much energy as you can in the crowd. If anything, how about this? It's even more sophisticated than I thought it was. It's even more intuitive than I thought it was. It asks so much of the wrestler to put 20 minutes of, of, of good match together and Unlike so many things in our world right now, it 100% depends on the other person to make it work. And in that way, it's very similar to acting. When Mary and I got to do scenes together in this thing, what you could feel was her full attention on me and my full attention on her. And together, that was how we were going to make something great. And I see that in good wrestling all the time. It's an incredible ethic that I think if people watch it and they love it, and they're a wrestling fan, that's enough. But when you walk away and go, wow, man, they were really there for each other. That's something that has a kind of a cultural repercussion that, that, I, that I believe in. So I guess I'm just more blown away. How's that? And speaking of those wrestlers from Duffy, how about James Harrison Jr. who played Apocalypse in Heels and also Alan Maldonado who plays Rooster Robin's great energy from these guys. Here's what they had to say. James, this question's for you. Somebody's been part of an NFL locker room for a lot of the, a lot of your life. What was it like bringing that kind of a dynamic to a wrestling locker room to this series? And do you feel like being a part of those locker rooms over the years helped kind of tell the story about extended family for the show a little bit more? You know, it's 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 a comparison to it. You know, it's an independent league. My my comparison is with me starting undrafted, taking the long road. You know, starting at an independent league. It's just like. You know, coming out and not being drafted, coming in, being cut, released, you know, same thing. You're starting off at the bottom, you know, Rooster right now, he's trying to he's trying to show and, and, and get them to understand that he's the best thing smoking and, and, and get out there and, and get to those levels so that he can advance. 
and and right now is you know that same dynamic with the DWL and and not you know him not getting that opportunity where I was not drafted even though I had the I had the numbers I had the stats but not getting that opportunity because of where I was and where you know where I came from and actually working your way through it you know from the bottom to the top and you know that's something that just you know that becomes your your, your family that whole locker room that's that extended family that you build a bond with that everything that you do is together and it's the same thing you know it's the same thing in the league so it's, it's very easily relatable you guys both talked about your characters, you know, wanting to hit the big time, and especially it, it can be difficult, especially in a sm smaller promotion like this. And, and Jack can be a little bit of a difficult guy to deal with. We see that earlier on. So how much will loyalty actually play a role in the story this season? So for Apocalypse, he is not a guy that has any, you know, beliefs of, of leaving anywhere uh, outside of DWL. He's very loyal to DWL. And, you know, he's content with, with where he's at in his journey. You know, he's been a guy that's been at the bottom. He's been a guy that's been at the top that has held the belt. And he's a guy that's very loyal to DWL because they were with him through a process of, a, you know, rehab and, you know, going in and coming back out and they, and they stuck with him. So his loyalty to the uh, DWL, I don't think is something that will change anytime soon. And I think that's something that he is trying to get Rooster to understand is that this process is not something that's against you. It's something that is for the betterment of the DWL and the building of a, of a bigger independent to something that and, is- And Ro Rooster ain't trying to hear all that, man. Mr. Right. Rooster ain't trying to hear all that, man. He, he just won his opportunity to shine, man. He's a bit torn just because the opportunities that he is looking for may not be happening immediately in DWL, but what makes him stay is the family and the camaraderie and especially his relationship with Apocalypse. It's kind of difficult for him to see a world without them not involved, especially Apocalypse. So he's a bit torn between his loyalty to DWL and the loyalty of the family of DWL. So that's his battle. I love that in episode two, by the way. Thanks, guys. Ah, dope, dope, dope. And you'll definitely see that highlighted as part of episode two this weekend on Stars Heels. Of course, every Sunday night at nine o'clock Eastern time on Stars. There's a lot of heartfelt moments in the second episode, too. And after the way episode one ended, yeah, you definitely want to stick around to find out what's going to be going on in episode two and the fallout from all that. And trust me, it is huge and they do not waste any time getting into it. You, This series is just one of those that shocks you from the beginning, or at least it did for me, and it just keeps getting better and better after that. Once again, thanks to Mary McCormick, Chris Bauer, James Harrison, and Alan Maldonado for joining me to talk about Heels on Stars. Up next, Superman and Lois had its first season finale, and I'm going to give you my spoiler-filled review of that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. This is Echo Callum, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to find out who has the edge in Smallville. It's my spoiler-filled review of the season one finale of Superman and Lois. And I just have to say, and I know I said this recently about a series that came up not too long ago, but I, it's very hard for me to remember. It, maybe I'll just take this to Arrowverse in general. The last time that a series had this strong of a first season across the board, and it, maybe it's because it's Superman, because we needed a reminder of what a great Superman story looked like on the screen. And this one just had it had so much heart. It had so much family. It had so much action. Great characters that were just coming in left and right. And I just got, I got to say, you know how they have all the memes on social media about Fast and Furious, about family and Dom and all this other stuff. And it, where's my Superman and Lois memes about family? Because that Kent family showed it up, didn't they? I mean, to to a certain extent, you could also say that about the Cushing family as well, quite frankly. And you saw Kyle get a little bit of redemption, had a big hero moment in the finale when he went to rescue that woman after the, you know the eradicating things were happening in Smallville and every everyone was running for their lives. So I really, for somebody that I pretty much hated throughout the entire season to give Kyle that hero moment and that moment of redemption, I thought was really, really neat. And, you know, of course, them sticking around to help once Jonathan went missing, I mean, excuse me, Jordan went missing, then I thought that that was really, really cool that they gave that them that redemption. And again, plenty of spoilers from here on out, but you want to talk about when Jordan goes missing, and there's a, there's a lot of this season has been about Jordan and his mental health. And I, I think that that's something that shouldn't go unnoticed about what happened this season. And I thought that they treated that story really, really well. But once he gets eradicated and they pretty much think it's the all hope is lost thing, right? But what's the S stand for? Exactly. So you have to have it and you get to see what Bitsy Tullock does as Lois Lane to try and reach her son. You get to see what Jordan Elsas has as Jonathan to reach his brother. You get to see what Tyler Hoechlin has to reach his son as Clark Kent and as Superman. But one of the things I loved about what they did to pull Jordan out of this is that you expect it to be Superman, right? You expect it to be Lois. And to a certain extent, it was. But it was the connection between the brothers. It was the connection between Jonathan and Jordan that ultimately snaps Jordan out of it. And to me, that was such a smart writing choice by Todd Helbing and the group in the writer's room. To do that and have that be the catalyst that really finally snaps Jordan out of it, I thought was incredible. After all these brothers have gone through together and separately in this season, to have that be... What happened? It, it it blew me away. I I had goosebumps, and I did not expect that to happen that way. Now, granted, Lois was the one that went in there in the danger zone, right? And you could you know entered his thoughts, tried to, to try to access that memory, and you didn't know whether it was going to work or not. 
but and that absolutely 100% helped. But at the same time, what Jonathan was able to do for Jordan, I thought was absolutely incredible. And how about John Henry Irons, right? How about Captain Luthor himself and how he helps Clark out to defeat the Eradicator and defeat Edge? I, you know, talk about a 180 for how they feel about each other, right? The way that this series had been going. Now, granted, they've been building to this. It's not like this happened, you know, overnight. But again, that partnership I just loved in this finale. And I thought that there was some great action. And you actually, you know, whether you like what they did with Edge or not, you really felt like, you know, this could go south. Now, it's the first season. You you pretty much figure, you know, this is going to work out for the heroes, right? And nothing wrong with that either, by the way. But there was that moment of dread. And in a Superman series, when you're talking about Superman, moments of dread aren't easy to come by. Because it's freaking Superman, right? There's not a whole lot that can bring Superman down or even close to it. But you really felt that way. And taking the Eradicator route in this, I think, was the real good way to go in telling this story. And and the way that they played it out and how they really, really needed John to assist with this and come up with something. And, and the fact that you know you had John and Jonathan working together on point which is really neat. You actually had character pairings that you wouldn't have expected in this episode that I really, really loved as well. So it's not just, you know, who you expect. It's let's put these characters together and see how it goes, which was really, really fun to watch play out in this episode as well. And how Dylan Walsh's General Lane, becoming a softie? You know, he's going to retire. He's going to be a family man now. How's General Lane family man going to look in season two? I can't wait to see. Now that's going to go. And again, you see some softening of stances in this season, but also you kind of don't at the same time, right? You get to see a little bit from both sides there, which I think is really, really interesting. But, and then you see, you know, Lois Lane going to help out with the paper now, going to, you know, the, the, the Smallville paper, she's going to be a part owner now, which is going to be a really, really neat story going forward in the second season. And then you get, and this is the biggest spoiler of all, that that last little nugget at the end of season one when you get John, his daughter returns to Earth. Well, not returns to Earth, but his daughter crash lands on Earth. He gets reunited with his daughter. And, of course, the daughter looks at Lois and says, Mom, uh, no, that's not your mom. Long story, but that was why John was going to leave in the first place, right? It's like, you know, when I see you, I see my wife, even though I know you're not. I can't just turn it off. And you understand that when you love somebody. That's just kind of how it goes. Right. So how is this going to affect the story going forward? And does his daughter make him want to stay in Smallville and stay to help out Superman? And maybe we're going to have a team soups here coming up soon. But there's so many things to look forward to in a second season. And this coming off of what was already a fantastic first season, full of heart and soul, a great villain, a great small town story as well. So well acted, so well cast, even from characters and names that we're not too familiar with. This is a show that I hope goes on forever, quite frankly. This is one that I hope goes on for multiple seasons and proof why Superman just works so much better on television. I'm sorry. I, I Will I say no to a Superman movie? Absolutely not. My butt will be in one of the first ones in that seat. But at the same time, 
Like, I, I think that this is just when you get it right, you you just see how well Superman works on television. And there's absolutely no denying that. That's going to do it for my spoiler filled review of the season one finale of Superman and Lois from the CW. Up next, how about we talk some comics and a brand new story, Second Chances from Image Comics with writer Ricky Mamone. We'll talk to him next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Rick Remender, comic book nerd of note, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is a book that should definitely be on your radar from Image Comics. It's Second Chances. First issue drops on August the 18th, and I can't wait to talk to this guy. He's the writer, Ricky Mamone. Ricky, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. How are you? Pretty good, man. And the first thing that grabbed me about Second Chances was just the concept of the book just on its surface. So how would you describe it to anybody who's coming in fresh? Yeah, of course. It's a guy who runs a hotline and he gives people new identities, but you need to meet a few requirements. You need to have the proper amount of cash, a good referral, and a really good reason to start over. And if he deems you worthy, then he can give you a new life. Which is which was the thing I was like, oh, that sounds really, really cool. And there's much more to it than that. We'll get to that here in just a second. But I really love the noir style feel of this story. Did that kind of factor into the decision to have the art for this book be in black and white? Yes, there there were a few reasons why we decided to go with black and white. One was that we couldn't find the right colorist for Max's artwork. That'll do it. There but, you go. <laughs> yeah. But also, French New Wave Noir was a really big influence on me and this story. And we wanted to do a lot of things that were philosophical. And since all the characters dwell in this morally gray, twisted area, it makes sense for everything to be in grayscale and that everything visually represents that. So, yeah, that that was our logic there. That is such a great way to put it to that morally gray thing. I love that. So LeBlanc, who's your main character, has a lot of skills, but he also has a lot to deal with as well. How much will we learn about just how difficult this job is and is on him, quite frankly? He is juggling a lot. And the reason why he keeps himself so busy is because he's also distracting himself from his own guilt and his own self-hate. <laughs> and so he needs to figure out his job is basically figuring all of these other people's lives out. But meanwhile, he doesn't have any time for himself and hasn't figured himself out. So so that's the irony there. And what's funny is you go into this story thinking, how can I relate to this guy? And I think that's it. Was that something that you thought about as well? It's like, this is this is some way I can actually, this makes this character relatable. And you wouldn't think that just going into this story. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's a bizarre noir. And there's a lot of crazy heightened things to the world. But at the same time, I wanted to make the characters really relatable and a lot of it is kind of there are personal aspects to it, even though uh, it, it's still all very heightened. So, yeah, LeBlanc, a lot of LeBlanc is supposed to be relatable. He's kind of a clumsy goofball and he's trying to be a hero and he's trying to do good. But he's also kind of self-righteous and he doesn't always make the right decision. So, yeah, he's he's not your typical hyper masculine noir hero in that way or anti-hero 
he's really flawed and and kind of just down to earth and and makes a lot of mistakes totally and people see that when they when they get the first issue for sure emma to me is a particularly interesting character you know she seems ordinary at first but there's really much more to her than that so how much are we going to learn about her as the story progresses emma is really important without giving too much away she's really important in terms of the arc that leblanc goes on but also she's really important in miss nobody's story without giving too much there and and emma also will have her own sort of realization and catharsis towards the end of the story that will be really important for the climax of, of everything kind of a uh, building up and getting this big payoff at the end in the final issue. Interesting, interesting. I love that you brought up Miss Nobody because she might be evil, but I think I love her already after just <laughs> this first issue. How would you describe her? Because, I mean, I don't think just calling her like she's the villain, I don't think that that, that really does it justice. So how do you describe her? Well, she is, in my mind, she's almost like an anti-villain. I, I don't think she she is... You'll you'll see that we're gonna we're gonna end up rooting for her probably at some point Ooh. or another, but but I think that overall she is a really complex character and in in my story I didn't want to have any pure I mean there there are pure villains but they're they're almost not important it they're they're almost like in the background and I find them to be more like support for the story. But really, we're looking at LeBlanc, Miss Nobody, and Emma, and the relationship that is between those those three forces. So yeah, Miss Nobody is definitely not a pure villain, and there's a lot more to come that will three-dimensionalize her character. I saw the description for the second issue, and I can't help but want to ask you to tease ahead a little bit, because we know that LeBlanc, LeBlanc and Miss Nobody are going to have a... A little bit of a meetup, per se. How does it go when those two personalities clash? Well, you'll find out that they have a history, and you'll learn more about that. And because they're such opposites, LeBlanc kind of represents you have a choice in who you are. He He's very almost existentialist in a way. And Miss Nobody thinks that you don't get to choose who you are everything's predetermined we're just here for this wild ride and she also while while leblanc is giving people new identities miss nobody is somebody who can take that away from someone and make them forget who they are so that dynamic they're they're polar opposites in that way so it does create some natural tension I love that double side of the coin, too. We're talking to Ricky Mamone, who is the writer of Second Chances, first issue coming out on August the 18th. Now, Ricky, LeBlanc faces some very unique obstacles in this very first issue. How do you, how do you describe how you worked with Max to kind of create these unique character designs for these baddies that he's going to come across? There, there were a few things that I kind of had to go over, but a part of it was doing research and just trying to figure out what normal crime would look like in terms of, of I, I didn't want to do anything overly exaggerated or heightened. And I wanted to, to kind of ground everything and make, and make an emotional story too. As you, as you'll see in issue two, there, there will be another client 
And the backstory is briefly told for this client, but at the same time, it's it's something that is very grounded in, in an emotional thing. We're not looking at things where it's just pure John Wick action packed. You're, you're kind of removed from these characters because they're so larger than life. I wanted to make it kind of vulnerable. I think the emotion definitely stands out right from the first issue, too. So I think you definitely nailed that. We talked about colors a little bit earlier, and you have amazing covers, covers that actually do have colors on them. And I'm not sure if I like issue one's cover more or issue three. I'm really trying to decide. But how is it to see these characters with that little bit of pop of color on these covers? And do you have anyone you'd really love to see do a variant at some point? Well, first of all, I I think Max is really just the perfect partner ever. And he, the most perfect partner ever. I guess that makes sense. He is really hard to to beat. I, I couldn't see this world in any other way without him. But the variants that we have so far uh, have turned out really great. We have retailer exclusives. And if if I had my druthers, there are a couple of guys who I would really love to see. One of them being Valerio Gian Giordano, who is the artist on Two Moons. And I, I, I have talked to him a bunch in the past. He is a really, really great artist who I would love to see do a variant. But I don't know if it's realistic or not at this point. Well, fingers crossed. And you're right, Max is fantastic. So, I mean, just give me Max's covers, and I'd certainly be fine with that. No doubt about <laughs> it. So, we, we got introduced some interesting characters in the first issue. You kind of teased it, it's somebody who's gonna be, we're going to meet in the second issue. Is there anybody else that's coming up that you're really excited for readers to meet character-wise? Yeah, for sure. There, there are a couple characters in issue two that I'm excited for people to meet. One of them is JC, who is this kind of awesome Japanese American car mechanic slash junkyard owner who is friends with LeBlanc and he you'll you'll be introduced to him and kind of he he's a he's just a great support character and will will play a big role in the in the upcoming issues. And also there's another client named Axel in, in this next issue who's who's LeBlanc's youngest client but he's also an internationally renowned hacker. And I think there's just a, a lot of fun stuff to be had there. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. That sounds really cool. I can't wait for that. Now, Ricky, before I let you go, this seems like a series that could actually run for a long time. Like I know that you said you have an ending, but I mean, it seems like this is something that you could really do for as long as you, you were allowed to do. So do you actually have plans for future stories beyond just this first arc? Yeah, I I definitely think that we do, but at the same time we're moving slightly slowly just because we we need to for financial reasons, but I de- we we both definitely want to keep the story going. The uh, it's really early, but some producers are interested in making second chances into a movie. So if that actually moves forward and things actually happen, then I feel like we'd be even more compelled to keep the arcs moving at a quicker pace so yeah there's there's def- there's a good chance pun not intended that we'll we'll make more arcs i love that you said that it could be a movie because when i was reading i was like this has movie written all over it and i think that would look so so cool but let's start with second chances number one you want the movie by the comic 
Get Second Chances number one at your local comic book shops and digital retailers starting on August the 18th from Image Comics. It's Ricky Mamone. Thank you so much, man, for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Aaron Pierre from Krypton on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Grab your wings and the shield because it's time for nerd news, and the news that really isn't that surprising. Quite frankly, this report coming from Deadline that Anthony Mackie has closed or is closing in on a deal to star as Captain America in Captain America 4, which is going to be coming from the writer of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Malcolm Spellman, also one of the staff writers as well, Dalen Muson. Now, here's the deal. We already knew Anthony Mackie was Captain America, right? If you watch The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, you kind of saw how that played out. You kind of see how that got left off. Now, what I thought was interesting was, was the did you see the outrage on Twitter? When they changed the Captain America profile picture from, I think it was Anthony Mackie at the time, to Captain Carter, Peggy Carter. You know, because they're promoting the What If series, right? And oh, the outrage. Oh, how dare they? Anthony Mackie just became Captain America. How dare you put Peggy Carter up there, Captain Carter? And yeah, was it a publicity stunt? Absolutely. And I'm sure Marvel Studios and Disney, thank you. If you were doing all that outraging on Twitter and on social media, they thank you for all the free publicity that they got for the What If series, for Anthony Mackie's Captain America, and for Captain Carter, too, by the way, all of whom they have big plans for, trust me. So again, great free publicity for them, and they didn't even have to spend a dime, and it's no accident that this news is coming out this week. Oh, by the way, they changed the profile picture on the Guardians of the Galaxy page from to T'Challa's Star-Lord, which was completely, again, expected by most of us who knew exactly what Marvel Studios was doing. They're promoting each show in the What If series because they want that series to succeed, too. What a shocker that they'd want to pr- promote something else to also succeed. So, And that was the plan all along. Don't think this outrage changed any plans. This is what they were going to do regardless of what the response was. And does Anthony Mackie deserve to be Captain America? Absolutely. He's earned that right based on the way the story has gone. Does he deserve to have a movie of his own? Sure. Absolutely. Give me a great story. He absolutely deserves to have not just one movie, but several movies going forward. If he can handle this role and he can just keep forwarding this character of Sam Wilson as Captain America, by all means, do as many movies as you like. As long as the story is good, because you know Anthony Mackie's good already. You know the character's good. Now it's up to the writers and the producers, Kevin Feige and the bunch, to come up with good stories to keep Sam Wilson as Captain America. That's all I'm saying. So give me that. And, and who knows? Are they going to even continue the storyline from The Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Are they going to bring Sharon Carter back? Is this going to be another continuation of the whole power broker thing? That we saw, are we going to see U.S. agent back in some capacity, or are they going to go a completely different direction? Who knows? There's no details on what the story is going to be. But again, not confirmed by Marvel Studios or anything. So this this is just one I think that we'll keep an eye on and see what shakes loose. Marvel wasn't done there, though. This one we actually know is confirmed. This one from comicbook.com, and that is that the Riri Williams character is going to be debuting in Black Panther 2 Wakanda Forever. Wait, Kevin Feige actually confirms this. Dominique Thorne's going to appear as she's going to be the one playing Riri Williams 
in the sequel before the Ironheart series even starts filming, apparently. Now, remember, Riri is a genius engineer. So to me, Riri fits in, fits right in with Wakanda. I'm not saying she's going to be coming from Wakanda because, we don't. again, we don't have any details in that, and that's not canon. But if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of smart people on Wakanda. And her being a genius-level engineer, I think she'd get along pretty well with a lot of the folks in Wakanda because she's right on their intelligence level. So what her role is going to be in this particular movie, though, is very... I'll be very interested to see that. But I will say, this is a really good way for Marvel Studios to introduce a character that is not mainstream at all. This character's debuted in the last five years or so. And that's me ballparking it. I'm, I could look it up. I'm sure that somebody will at me with the exact date. I know that the issue was in Invincible Iron Man number seven, I think it was, was her first appearance. Anyway, this is a great way because the, the general movie going public at least had a vague idea of who Iron Man was, has no clue who Ironheart is in Riri Williams. And they should. And this is a great way for them to give this character a good introduction and a nice boost heading into this Ironheart Marvel Disney Plus series, and you know what? Who knows from there on out? Yeah, we could see Riri Williams as Ironheart in Avengers movies some point down the line. We don't know exactly. This is going to be a testing ground to see how this character is going to do. And and as long as you love her, and as long as you think she belongs, she'll be in these movies. Maybe standing side by side with Sam Wilson as Captain America. Who knows? So, again... Great idea, great introduction, as long as it makes sense. I am all for it, and, and and there are plenty of ways that they could make this make sense. So I can't wait to see exactly how Riri is going to be introduced in Black Panther 2 Wakanda forever. Just one trailer that I want to talk about this week, and yep, it's another He-Man. You almost forgot, because everybody was, everybody's been so mad about Masters of the Universe Revelation, which I loved, by the way. You almost forgot they were doing another He-Man series. This is He-Man... And the Masters of the Universe, which is going to be coming to Netflix on September the 16th. Now, keep in mind, this one has a little bit more of a youthful tilt. This is going to be geared towards a younger audience. And this is, you want to talk about, this is going to be a very, very young Adam and He-Man. And a young cast of characters around him as well. Skeletor, maybe not necessarily young, but you definitely get to see Skeletor in a different way if you see the trailer, and this is going to be a battle between the two of them to for for Castle Grayskull. You know, it's classic He-Man, right? Not just not just Castle Grayskull, but Attorney as a whole, because Adam and his group of friends are trying to save Attorney. By the way, Orko's a robot, which is kind of weirding me out a little bit. So that's something that I'm really having a hard time getting a, getting past. I mean, it makes sense in a certain way, so I could see why they're doing it, but. I think that there's more to uh, there's going to be more to it than that. And again, it's hard to tell from just one trailer, right? But they want to restore the peace to Eternia, and that is the bottom line of what they're doing here. The trailer, if you look at the animation style, it looks very Troll Hunters esque, and that actually makes a lot of sense because House of Cool, who did Troll Hunters, was one of the animation studios involved here. We also had CGCG, who did Star Wars: The Clone Wars. You want to talk about two heavy hitters working on this series? That's exactly. Who you have. And then you look at the cast. I mean, you get Yuri Lowenthal is going to be the voice of He-Man and Adam. Yeah, Spider-Man himself is going to be voicing He-Man. This time around, you got Greg Griffin, who's going to play Evil Lynn. 
You've got you've got the great Tom Kenny who's going to be playing Orc O. Our buddy Roger Craig Smith going to be playing Cronus Trapjaw and General Dolos. And and Cronus is actually going to be an an interesting connected character to Adam as well. Tila going to be played by Kimberly Brooks in this one. Trevor Duvall's actually in this too, playing Beastman and Raquaz. And the the list goes on and on. Just some amazing members of this cast. You know, voiceover superstars as far as I'm concerned. So that's one of the things that's got me really, really excited for this series. And the character designs, very, very different from what you're used to from He-Man and the Masters of the Universe or any Masters of the Universe iteration. Not a bad thing as far as I'm concerned. And the, and the toy line will reflect that as well. Of course, the, the, one of the reasons that Mattel Television are doing these series is to sell toys. And they are not shying away from that at all. Rob David from Mattel Television actually going to be the showrunner for this series this time around and an executive producer. And you know how big of a fan of Masters of the Universe Rob David is. So, yeah, let's just take a look at this. And if for just for what it's worth right now, again, going to be geared towards a younger audience. Maybe that's going to upset the same people that didn't like Masters of the Universe Revelation. I don't know. It looks like you're going to get more of He-Man and Adam in this one than you did in Revelation, but you you don't know. If that was your problem with Revelation, then maybe that fixes that. But again, just take remember that this is for a younger audience when it comes out on September the 16th. I say just you know give it a chance. I'm certainly going to give it a chance. I'm actually really excited to see how they take this in a little bit of a different direction. And by the way, there's also nothing wrong with that because that doesn't mean they're not going to be telling a good story. They very, very well could. Again, hard to tell from one trailer. Certainly looks like it's going to be action-packed and definitely something that I am up for. Really quickly, just a reminder of something that we talked about before. Hotel Transylvania 4 Transformania is indeed going to be going right to streaming according to Variety. A $100 million deal with Amazon. It is going to go to Prime Video on its release date, which looks like it's still going to be October the 1st. I think it is. So and that was supposed to be the battle with Adam's family. I will correct that date at down and nerdypodcast.com or on our social media pages. If I end up being wrong about that, but again, family movie, you've still got Delta variants and all this other COVID stuff going on. You know, maybe you don't feel comfortable bringing your child to the movie theater. Not going to be blame, not going to blame you for that at all. And a hey, hundred million bucks, is a good chunk of change for Sony to make on Hotel Transylvania 4. And, you know, probably would have made more than that at the traditional box office, but you, these are... I hate to use the words, these are uncertain times, but they really are. I mean, there's no really better way to put it. If you put a movie out in a theater, and I'm talking about any movie, this goes for Shang-Chi, this goes for when they do put out Adam's Family 2, that sequel that's going to be coming on on October the 1st. When, when you put these movies out... It's a gamble right now. You have no idea what this box office number is going to look like. You just have to roll with it and hope for the best. That's one of the reasons that Sony pulled the release date for Venom Let There Be Carnage. They have no idea when would be a good time to release that movie. They're not sure, and I can't really blame them. And is it still going to be coming out in September, October, November? I have no idea when it's going to be coming out. But here's the begs the question for me. Is should all family movies just go right to streaming right now that are planned for theaters? You've got the Paw Patrol movie, which is out right now on Paramount+. Plus. 
You've got Hotel Transylvania, Transformania going right to streaming. You've had some other family movies going to either Disney Plus or whatever streaming service. To me, this is just the smart play because you're, you are going to have parents that have no trouble bringing their kids to the theater and they're safe doing that, and that's their choice. You're also going to have an, uh, a number of parents who feel exactly the opposite, who would love to see this movie and bring their kids, but they're not going to take that risk. And, and again, what does that do to your box office number? If you are anybody trying to put out a family-friendly movie right now, I just think this is the right way to go. You cut your losses, you get what you can for any family movie, and then you just cross your fingers and hope for the best next year. Because I think that's that's what you got to shoot for. You got to shoot for 2022 now, especially if you're a family-centered movie. If it's a you know like a rated R movie or something like that, I I could see more adult-themed movies still going to the theaters or having a dual release like HBO Max is is doing with Warner Brothers right now, but I would tread lightly for almost any movie being released right now because I think that this, until our COVID problems go away, this is all, this is going to be a huge question mark across the board. Really quickly, because I thought this was very much worth mentioning, and that is that Jinx World, which is the creator-owned stuff from Brian Michael Bendis, is going to be moving to Dark Horse Comics. Of course, DC had been publishing Jinx World titles hadn't for a while, but but that was the former home of the Jinx World titles once Bendis went to DC. Now taking Jinx World over to Dark Horse, and there's going to be a new title that's going to be added to this as well, called Joy Operation, which is going to be a really cool, funky sci-fi vibe that's going to be coming from Bendis. You're also going to have new issue, new chapters, not necessarily the, the continuations of the story, anyway for titles like Pearl and Murder, Inc. and things like that. And those are books that I remember really, really enjoying when they came out when DC was publishing them. So I think that that's going to be... And and Dark Horse seems like a really good home. They put out some really cool, funky sci-fi stuff at Dark Horse. Bendis seems very, very excited about joining the mix. He was talking about... in In the quote from the press release, he actually said, you know, from Dark Horse presents all the way up to Black Hammer, Dark Horse has been at the forefront of the kind of creator-owned comics I personally adore and aspire to. That's high praise from somebody like Brian Michael Bendis. And these Jinx World titles are funky. They they are cool. They have a little bit of an edge to them. It's exactly the kind of thing, like he said, that Dark Horse has been doing recently. And I think that adding more titles to this rich catalog already is going to be very, very cool and interesting. Now, you're not going to get Joy Operation until November the 17th of this year, but you're also going to have trade paperbacks of Pearl Volume 1, which are going to be out in 2021. One and two are going to be out next year. You're also going to have some other titles. Powers is going to have, um, they're going to republish that as well. So this is, again, very interesting because it never really worked out with Bendis in DC, I don't think uh, the you know the Jinx World thing didn't really work. His Superman title wasn't as well received as I think DC had hoped. The whole Leviathan storyline didn't really play out as well as they really wanted it to. I don't think. Moving on, and now is Bendis completely moving on from DC? I didn't say that because I've seen I see no information that tells me that. But what I will say is that moving this Jinx World stuff to Dark Horse is first of all very telling. Second of all, 
I think maybe Bendis just looking a little bit for a little bit more creative freedom to continue these stories, and Dark Horse is willing to give him that. And I think that that's one of the reasons, in my opinion, for this move. By the way, nothing wrong with that either, by the way. And I certainly think that Dark Horse will give them a lot more attention than DC has the ability to. Because, you know, when you've got Batman and you've got all these other heroes that you're that you're promoting, it's hard to promote creator-owned stuff. And that's why we're seeing a lot of creators go to more creator-friendly, creator-owned-friendly stuff for their creator-owned titles. But then, again, I've said it a million times, creator-owned, there's a reason why you're publishing that elsewhere. And there's nothing wrong with that either because DC is certainly going to be making their money on other stuff. And they have some creator-owned stuff too. But you certainly understand why Bendis makes this move. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my bevy of guests this week. We, we talked about Chapelweight. We talked about a great new comic, Second Chances, from Image Comics. We also talked about Heels. Once again, make sure you're getting into all of that stuff. And if you're listening for the first time, thank you so much for your longtime subscriber. Thank you to you as well. You can always subscribe to us anywhere you get your podcasts. Also, you can go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. want you to follow us on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, and at downandnerdy on Facebook. Remember, You never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.